You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. A guide to the infantry of the Napoleonic era. So... As you may have already noticed, we've deviated from the schedule a little bit. I'll be moving to a new apartment in a few days, plus I had exams, so there was just no time to get the next episode ready. But I didn't want to leave you guys hanging, so I threw together this short, non-narrative episode. I actually wrote a lot of this for last time, but I felt like it didn't really flow with the rest of the material, so I wound up cutting it. So... We talked last episode about Count Guibert and his theories about building a new, more powerful kind of army made up of citizen soldiers. A big part of Guibert's writing had to do with light infantry tactics. He believed his citizen soldiers would be naturally suited to this type of warfare. Light infantry were a specialized branch within the infantry, and light infantry tactics were at the cutting edge of 18th century military theory. Sort of like today, you constantly hear politicians and pundits debating cyber warfare. A lot of them seem unsure as to what exactly that is, but it's new and everybody seems to agree it's important. Well, in the 1700s, that was light infantry tactics. To explain exactly what light infantry tactics are, you first have to understand how the infantry worked in armies of this era. Different battlefield situations required foot soldiers to play different roles. Every infantry unit was specialized, its recruitment and training tailored to one of these roles. The vast majority of infantrymen were classified as fusiliers, sometimes also called musketeers or line infantry. Their specialty was firing musket volleys in line formation. This was by far the most common tactic of this era, and it was relatively easy to train new recruits to be fusiliers, so 18th century armies raised a lot of them. Most of the men on the field in practically every battle of the Napoleonic Wars were fusiliers. This was sort of the default type of infantryman. If a recruit didn't show any particular aptitude for another sub-branch of the service, this is where he would end up. The expectations of a fusilier were pretty simple. Obey your officers, hold the line, and be able to load and fire a musket in under 30 seconds. Even though firing their muskets was a big part of fusilier's role on the battlefield, marksmanship wasn't really a big part of fusilier training. In the Austrian army, for example, 
soldiers were allotted 30 rounds a year for target practice. Think about that. In peacetime, an Austrian soldier would only fire his weapon two or three times a month. That's nowhere near enough practice to really get good at something. To me, it sounds more like the bare minimum required to keep the men from actually forgetting how to do it. Firearms of this era were generally very inaccurate. With an army-issue musket, it was hard for even an expert marksman to reliably hit a target more than 50 yards or 45 meters away. So accurate musket fire just wasn't a very realistic proposition, even if armies had spent the money to obsessively train their men in target shooting. And it was a bit of a moot point for the average fusilier anyway. His target on the battlefield was usually an entire enemy unit, packed in dense formation, not an individual soldier. Volley fire was the signature tactic of the era, but it was inherently defensive. Other techniques were required on the attack. Which brings us to the second major subtype of infantry, the grenadiers, who specialized in the assault. The name is actually a bit misleading. Hand grenades did exist in this era, but they were incredibly dangerous and unreliable. By Napoleon's day, it had been decades since any European military used them in significant numbers. However, armies found that the units they had organized to use the grenade were actually quite useful. Grenades were incredibly heavy, so the men had been selected for size and strength. And they were an offensive weapon rather than a defensive one so grenadier training focused on assaults and urban combat. The grenades themselves were a terrible idea, but there was a real need for troops trained in the attack, and even if they weren't going to be hurling bowling ball-sized hand grenades around the battlefield, the height and strength requirements proved very useful when it came to busting down doors, scaling fortifications, or fighting in hand-to-hand combat. So, the grenades went away, but the grenadier units stayed, and the name stuck. There were never very many of them. For instance, in the United States Army of this period, only one out of every nine infantrymen was a grenadier. This made them a bit of an elite. You have to be brave to charge into musket fire, and grenadier units had strict physical requirements. To join the Prussian grenadier guards, you had to be a minimum of six foot two, or 1.87 meters. That's pretty tall for today. It was positively gigantic in an era in which the average height for a man was only 5 foot 6, or 1.67 meters. In most armies, the size of the grenadiers was accentuated with distinctive tall hats. Those big bearskin things the Queen's Guard at Buckingham Palace wears today represent a pretty common style. In other armies, they wore something similar to a bishop's mitre. The third major subtype of infantry were the opposite of the grenadiers. They tended to recruit small, nimble men. These were the light infantry. We are kind of an exception in English in that we don't really have a good word for these types of troops. Ranger was pretty common in the 18th century, especially in North America, but that's taken on a different connotation in modern times. They were also sometimes called riflemen, because they were often equipped with rifles rather than muskets. If you're familiar with the Sharp books by Bernard Cornwell, or the Sharp TV series starring Sean Bean, the main character, Richard Sharp, 
serves in the 95th Rifles, which was a real light infantry regiment in the British Army. Light infantry were often used as scouts. Armies would send them out ahead of their march columns to learn about the terrain and keep watch for the enemy. In combat, light infantry specialized in skirmishing. Skirmishers fought in a very loose formation, so loose that it hardly looks like a formation at all. Skirmishing was closer to the way modern soldiers fight, using the terrain to find cover, picking individual targets and firing at will rather than in volleys at an undifferentiated mass of enemy soldiers. On the battlefield, armies would send out skirmishers ahead of the main force, where they would size up the enemy position, probe it for weaknesses, disrupt opposing units with sniping, and, of course, fight the enemy skirmishers. They could also be used in wooded or rocky terrain that was too rough for soldiers to march through in formation. Marksmanship was much more important for light infantrymen than it was for fusiliers. They practiced constantly. Some units made new recruits pass a marksmanship test before joining. Light infantry were selected for size and skill, but also for initiative and self-reliance. The rest of the army could get along blindly following orders, but a soldier in skirmish formation might not even be in shouting distance of the nearest officer. He had to be able to think for himself and use his own judgment. Light infantry units liked to recruit hunters or poachers or men who came from remote wilderness areas, the type of men who knew firearms, knew how to navigate rough terrain, and relied on their marksmanship for their meals. In almost every language but English, light infantry are referred to literally as hunters. Chasseur in French, Jaeger in German, and Casador in Spanish. That gives you a good idea of the types of skills armies expected from them. Another group that was frequently recruited for the light infantry was the urban bourgeoisie. This sounds counterintuitive, but well-off young men often had experience with firearms, from their town militia, or from recreational hunting or target shooting. Their educations made it easier for armies to teach them the more conceptual aspects of light infantry combat. And it was among the young, middle-class men of this period that we begin to see the first stirrings of nationalism. These men often had idealistic, patriotic reasons for joining the army which made them a good fit for a style of warfare in which soldiers had to rely on an inner motivation, rather than simply being urged on by their officers. These were the types of citizen soldiers Guibert had envisioned in his writings, and, just as he predicted, they excelled at light infantry combat. So that's really it. You encounter a lot of exotic-sounding, bombastic names for European infantry units of this period the Baron Boda St. Petersburg Volunteer Regiment, the Casadores de Barbastro Regiment, the 42nd Royal Highland Regiment of Foot, better known as the Black Watch, the Flanker Chasseur Regiment of the Imperial Guard. I could go on. But underneath all the endlessly colorful titles, they all pretty much fit into one of those three categories. There were also Marines, of course, but unlike today, it was rare for Napoleonic marine units to fight on land for any extended period of time. 
Their main job was sniping at enemy sailors and boarding enemy ships during naval combat. They don't really figure in to many of the land battles of this period. These subtypes of infantry are a good window into 18th century tactics, but we should keep in mind these were just specializations. Every type of unit was theoretically capable of undertaking any type of task. Grenadiers and light infantrymen were perfectly capable of holding the line and blasting away in a volley, like a fusilier unit. If an officer saw the enemy wavering, but there were no grenadier companies nearby to spearhead an assault, he would order his fusiliers to fix bayonets and charge without batting an eye. Skirmishing was a bit trickier, but the rest of the infantry was routinely expected to give it a try. All soldiers were trained for roles outside of their specialization. Battles are chaotic and unpredictable. They were regularly expected to do things that might have technically been not their job. Just as they are today, frontline soldiers were assisted by various types of support troops. Engineers built or repaired bridges, fortifications, and buildings. Maintaining the roads used by the army was an important part of an engineer's job, so they were often also entrusted with various logistical tasks. There were also specialized troops who functioned sort of like the opposite of engineers, tearing down infrastructure and fortifications used by the enemy. They were referred to as pioneers or sappers. But engineers and sappers were never more than a tiny proportion of infantry troops. In the French army, there was only one squad of sappers per regiment, so only about 1% of the unit's total strength. Battlefield medicine, as we know it, began to evolve during this period. The French army was the first in the world to have an integrated ambulance service to take wounded soldiers off the field while the battle was still going on, and organized field hospitals to give them treatment as soon as possible. If you've ever wondered why we use a French word for the process of sorting the wounded by severity of injury, triage, it's because it was developed by the French army during this period. The French army medical system was incredibly effective at reducing fatalities, but it was also massively expensive and difficult to organize. By the time of the Battle of Waterloo, only the Russians had been able to match the French hospital system eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Breakthroughs in weapons technology had a huge impact on the course of World War I and World War II. But that degree of innovation is actually pretty rare in the history of warfare. As we've discussed, changes in army organization and doctrine were incredibly important during the wars of the Napoleonic era, but there actually weren't many innovations in military hardware. 
The French troops who fought at Valmy in 1792 were using the 1777 model French army musket. That same model was still the standard for the French army at Waterloo, 23 years later. Russia, Austria, and Prussia all introduced new standard-issue musket models during the Napoleonic Wars, but there was nothing revolutionary about any of these designs. They were more variations on older models than genuinely new weapons. None of the combatants had any real technological edge in their standard-issue infantry armaments. British or French muskets were generally considered the best, and Russian or Spanish the worst, but that had more to do with manufacturing quality than differences in design. Some light infantry units were equipped with special, more accurate weapons. Typically, these were rifles, as opposed to the general-issue muskets. What distinguishes a rifle from a musket is a series of grooves cut into the inside of the barrel. These grooves cause the bullet to spin in a kind of corkscrew motion as it travels, which makes rifle fire much more accurate than musket fire over much longer distances. So why didn't they just equip everyone with rifles? Well, they also had some serious drawbacks. Rifles were much slower and harder to load. Remember, we're talking about muzzle-loading firearms here. So to load a rifle, the soldier would have to ram every shot through all those grooves in the barrel. An experienced marksman could be expected to fire four shots a minute with a smoothbore musket, but even the best could rarely do better than twice a minute with a rifle. Those grooved barrels also had a lot more nooks and crannies for soot, gunpowder residue, and other types of dirt to gather, so they had to be cleaned and replaced much more often. But probably the biggest limiting factor in the eyes of governments was that rifles were very expensive and slow to produce. Only a skilled, trained artisan could produce a rifle, working mostly by hand, whereas muskets were almost on the level of industrial-scale mass production by this period. To take an example, the British Baker rifle was one of the most successful rifles of this era. At its peak, the British Army of the Napoleonic Wars had over a quarter million men, but only 22,000 Baker rifles were ever produced. The vast majority of British infantrymen used the land pattern musket, the good old brown bass, essentially the same weapon that their forebearers used in the American War of Independence and the Seven Years' War. By the time of the Battle of Waterloo, some variation of the Brown Bess had been in service for 93 years. There wasn't much variation between the great powers in equipment either. Soldiers on all sides carried packs of roughly 50 to 80 pounds. That's 22 to 36 kilograms in metric. Now, that's a lot of weight, but actually it's slightly less than the average World War II infantrymen carried, and significantly less than modern soldiers carry. Packs would be stashed somewhere safe before a battle. Napoleonic commanders expected a lot of their men, but fighting a three-day battle with 80 pounds of gear strapped to your back was more than even Napoleon dared ask. As far as uniforms go, there was a confusing, dazzling amount of variety, even between different regiments in the same army. This was an era in which military clothing was colorful, even gaudy. Individual regiments took pride in the distinctive, sometimes totally impractical, elements of their uniforms. But on a basic level, they were usually pretty much the same. 
At the outbreak of the War of the First Coalition, the most common type of infantry headgear in European armies was the bicorn. The logo for the Age of Napoleon podcast is the Emperor's own famous bicorn hat, so take a glance at your podcast app if you want to know what they looked like. By the end of this period, most armies switched from the bicorn to the chaco. A chaco is a tall, round cap with a short visor. You can still see them today in the ceremonial dress uniforms of some militaries, or on civilian marching bands. Pants and shirts were generally pretty simple, usually just plain white or gray. All the color and variation came from the jackets, usually made of wool. Even common soldiers' uniform jackets came with a whole spectrum of colored piping and rows of shiny, superfluous buttons and insignia. Some of this ostentation was purely about tradition and regimental pride, but it did serve some practical purposes as well. It built a sense of cohesion among the men, and made it easier for them to recognize each other on a smoky battlefield. And, let's face it, this is an era in which life for the average person was pretty drab and boring. A cool-looking uniform couldn't hurt when it came to recruitment. Every army had at least one regiment dressed in almost every color you can imagine, but there was some degree of consistency. Most French infantry wore blue, as did the Spanish, Portuguese, and Dutch. Austrian uniforms were generally white, and Russian uniforms green. Most Prussian infantry wore a dark, midnight navy that we still refer to as Prussian blue. And, of course, most British units wore their famous red coats. So, maybe not the most important details, but hopefully that'll help you picture the action as we move forward. Anyway, that's all for now. Next time, we really will get back to the narrative. Until then, thanks for listening. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.